You're listening to a message from Christian Life Ministries in Coventry, a dynamic, growing church in the heart of the nation. We pray that God will speak to you through this word and impact your life for His glory. Well, it's a joy to be sharing the word of God with you this morning. I think I know most people in the room, probably not true, that's a lie, isn't it, Luke? I know a number of you. For those that don't know me, I'm one of the full-time staff members here. I've been introduced by Pastor Martin. I sit as one of the assistant pastors. But mainly, the main bit of news I want to let you know about, because I'm excited, it will help me be calm, is I'm getting married this year. Whoa! I share that as a witness to our wonderful God. That's a miracle. If people are like, does God really exist? Say, he's getting married this year. It's very exciting. My wonderful wife-to-be is not in Coventry. Everyone go, ah. We're doing long distance. Ah, that's painful. I'm getting on with the message. This isn't about me. Thank you, Pastor Martin. (laughs) It's my joy to be opening the Word of God for us this morning. And today, as Pastor Martin has already said, we are in week two of Disciples Make Disciples, just a short series for us. And the big idea is held in the heart And the title of this series, that disciples, as Martin helped us understand last week, those who follow Jesus, those who choose to put their trust in him and choose to follow this rabbi, this teacher, this one who brings life, those disciples, they also make disciples. That those that have been called out of the grave, your job now isn't just to simply follow, but to call others and say, I've seen something better. I've seen a different way. I'm following the way, the truth, and the life. And to call others out of the grave and say, there's life in Jesus. What an incredible truth. That we, as followers of Jesus, are the called out ones and are called to call out others. That's a bit of a mouthful. But if you note it down, maybe it will make sense later. You see, this is marked marked by the believers in the New Testament. We read it time and time again. People come to know Jesus, and they can't help but tell about him. They, They find out about this Savior. They encounter him. There's something revealed of his beauty and his splendor, and they can't help but go, gosh, have you heard about Jesus? The whole of the New Testament, we see just church planting and we see disciples and and numbers and numbers of followers of Jesus added. Why? Because there was a people who had caught what it was to be a disciple and that was to make others disciples. A really clear way we see this is at the end of Matthew 28, as Martin shared, that we have the great commission here, or so it's called, that the sending of the 11 disciples there Sending them out, Jesus, there, these 11 men to make disciples of all nations. Beautiful. Jesus saying, all authority in heaven and earth is mine, and I'm sending you in that authority to go and make disciples of all nations. And he promises to be with us for all time. And I'm so glad this was his commission, because it means now, me, Luke, in Coventry, I didn't get raised in a Christian home, but I know this Jesus because there was disciples that carried this message through hundreds of years, and now in this random town in England, here I am saved by the grace of God. Is anyone else thankful for that? Anyone else thankful that the disciples took this seriously? 
And I wonder if we asked ourselves, who's going to be thankful because we lived out our call? Who's going to sit in a church, a place where the people of God gather, and they're going to sit there thankful because you share Jesus? I don't know what nation of the earth it might be, but because you lived out your faith. The Lord has brought all the nations of the earth, even to Coventry. How wonderful. And so what we are called to do is simply share him. And we're going to explore a little bit of what that looks like. The call is to look like Jesus, to follow his way, to point others to him. And a man that lived this out better than most is the Apostle Paul. An incredible man of God. A man who was actually, if you read some of his writings, I feel like he's quite scary. I, I wouldn't really, maybe I would. I wouldn't want Paul to be my pastor. He was intense. There's actually a story in Acts where he's preaching. Someone falls out of a window when he's preaching. They die. He goes down, prays for them. They're raised to life, and he carries on preaching. Wow. If you sleep in this service, I'm not going to call it out. You'll be blessed. The Lord gives rest to his beloved. You're going to sleep. But Paul, no, if he was preaching, whew, you'd be getting called out. There's actually a few people I look out. I know you're sleepers. We get to the word and you're like, mm, I'm going to rest my eyes. Let the Holy Spirit convict you on that. <laughs> this man, he wrote a huge portion of the Bible we have in our hands today. He planted churches, saw many come to know Jesus, but it wasn't always like that. You know, Paul, he was also known as Saul. And some people think this happened during his conversion, that his name changed from Saul to Paul. But scholars help us understand one was probably his Hebrew name, Saul, and the other his Greek name, Paul. And the first time he's mentioned in the Bible is in Acts 8. And he's mentioned as being pleased that Stephen, one of the disciples, had been stoned to death. This is where we first meet this incredible man of God as being pleased that a disciple, a Christian, had been murdered. Why? Because he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was determined to stamp out this new, as he saw it, blasphemous sect of Christianity, of Christ followers. So he was like the hatchet man or the heavy man of the Pharisees. You might imagine Paul as some big guy now, considering what I said, right? Church history helps us understand he was probably quite a small man. But still, for the people around that time, they would have been scared of him. He was intelligent. He was learned in the Hebrew scriptures, and he was determined to eradicate Christianity. Then Acts 9 describes him as on his way to a place called Damascus to find out some more Christians, to find them out and to bring them to Jerusalem for trial and probably for death. And it says in Acts 9 that he's on his way and he's breeding murderous threats. Murderous threats, what does that even mean? Probably the closest parallel is when someone cuts you up when you're driving in your car. That's murderous threats. No, it's not. You shouldn't be breathing murderous threats when someone cuts you up in the car. But murderous threats, what does that look like? That is hatred. That is anger towards these followers of Jesus. This is the man that we first encounter in Paul. And then on the road to Damascus, on his way to do exactly this, he has an encounter with Jesus. I don't have time to go into it now, but you can read it later on. He has this incredible encounter with Jesus, and it changes his life from being a killer of Christians to a lover of Jesus and his people. So he's in Damascus for a bit when he finally gets there, his conversion experience, and straight from the off, 
Paul is on the go. Saul, Paul, will use his name interchangeably. He's on the go. He's telling people about Jesus in Damascus. And what happens is the Jewish people there, they don't like it. And so they make a plot to kill him. And so Paul has to flee from Damascus, and he goes to Jerusalem. And this is where I want us to pick up in Acts 9, verse 26 to 27. When he came to Jerusalem, this is Paul, he tried to join the disciples, tried to join the church there. But they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was really a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. Paul goes to the church in Jerusalem to the disciples there, the, the ones who had been set apart to share Jesus. And he goes there and they're like, we don't believe you. I don't think you're really a Christian. I don't think you're really a follower of Jesus. Imagine if the story had ended there. But what it took was for a man of God to come alongside him and vouch for him. And to say, no, I've seen this man. He's, he's the real deal. His life has been changed by Jesus. This man called Barnabas that we see here took him and brought him. He stood alongside him, willing to take his own reputation on the line to vouch for this man, Paul. The result, the church accepted him. And his ministry flourished in Jerusalem. And we might say the rest is history. Thank God for this moment with Barnabas. Thank God for a man who vouched for him. Not just once we're going to see, but time and time again, he came alongside Paul and he disciples him. He loves him. He champions him. And today, as we consider disciples make disciples, I want us to learn from this man called Barnabas. This man, the leader of leaders, the man who discipled the great apostle Paul, I want us to glean some things from his life. Is that okay? Yeah. Are you with me? Yeah. We're going to learn from Barnabas. We first meet Barnabas fairly early in Acts. And the first instance is just one small sentence in Acts 4. It's Acts 4, 36 to 37. And it says this, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Wow. Barnabas isn't even his real name. It's his nickname, and it's a powerful nickname. Has anyone else got a powerful nickname? No, I haven't either. <laughs> What a nickname. Mine, I tried to make this catch on when I was maybe 12. Mine was Spike because I had spiky hair. So ingenious, wasn't it? I'm not sure why it never caught on. Spike was my nickname. Hmm. Thank God that it didn't catch on, actually. Imagine that now. But it says here that the disciples gave him this name, which means son of encouragement. Because of what they saw in him, because of what he said, because of what he did, they say, this man is a man of encouragement. A man who started his life as Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, defined by where he was from and what family or tribe he belonged to. And he ends his life 
defined as a man of encouragement. What a beautiful picture. And underlying, not really part of the main points, but really to help us in our understanding of this entirely, I want us to understand that disciples are born again and become. Disciples are born again and become. Stay with me as I unpack this thought. You see, he started his life as Joseph, and, and his name was still going to be Joseph. It carried on like that, but the Bible helps us understand that step one of discipleship is being born again. It's being born again. What does this mean? Well, we don't read about it, but Joseph the Levite, at some point, he gave his life and surrendered it to Jesus Christ. In John 3, Jesus, talking to a religious teacher there, says that to enter the kingdom of God, to enter heaven, you have to be born again. I love how it puts it in 1 Peter 1.3. It should come up on the screen. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You see, following after God, being a disciple starts by being born into the family of God. Not just a physical birth that all of us have, but a spiritual birth to become sons and daughters of the Most High. When we receive Jesus, when we receive what he's done on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. So you've got phase one, disciples are born again. They've come to the saving knowledge of Jesus. And then phase two is simply becoming like him. Becoming like Jesus. The theological terms are justified to be made right with God, to be born again, and then sanctified to be made holy, to be made like him. Just wave at me if you're born again. Wonderful. Phase one complete. That means you're in phase two. Guess what? There's not a phase three. Well, heaven, we're going to see him and be fully like him, amen? But on this earth, we're born again and then becoming. And the reason that it's so important to catch this is sometimes we feel like I'm going to defer my making of disciples or fulfilling some commands till I reach a certain level of being a follower of Jesus. I need to get to a certain mark or a certain understanding before I invite others to follow him. And the truth is, church, that's just not the case. If we go back to this place of the Great Commission with Jesus there with his disciples, we have 11 ordinary men. Imagine them with their doubts, their frailties, their questions, their worries, their own issues, and Jesus sends them out to go and make disciples. He doesn't go, oh, wait a minute, I need to give you 10 more years. Because, gosh, I didn't realize you guys were so broken. You need to talk away and learn some more theology before you, you share me. Because you just, you're going to miss it. He says, go, go. And we see in the stories of Acts that sometimes they get it wrong. Sometimes they get it right. There's still moments where they have to be rebuked and corrected and go and be raised in the things of God. But they still go. And I want us to understand that in this process of becoming more like Jesus, that he still invites us to go and make disciples. That as soon as we're in this place of acknowledging Jesus of Lord, we have something incredible to share. We have something powerful to share. I love 
the quote that Spurgeon is attested to that we are just beggars pointing other beggars in the direction of bread. I love that picture. I don't know everything, guys, but Jesus has changed my life. It doesn't mean that theological training is bad. It doesn't mean that we don't grow in our understanding, but it means that in the process of becoming, we can make disciples. Does that make sense? And that's a challenge for us because sometimes we like to come up with excuses as to why we shouldn't or why we're not good enough or why we can't. And Jesus says you can. This isn't reserved for another phase. In making disciples, you invite people to be born again, to put their trust in Jesus and to become more like him. And that's the process that we're invited into, to invite others to come and know Jesus and to be with our brothers and sisters who already know him and say, I'm going to help you become more like him. This wonderful Jesus. You see, great things are done through ordinary people becoming more and more like him. You know, some maths to think about as we consider this. I never thought that line would come out of my mouth, some maths to consider. I left mass behind in GCSEs, and I'm very happy with that. If a follower of Jesus saw one person come to know Jesus every year, and they chose to follow him, and that person then went on to do the same, and they carried on doing that, over 20 years, 1,048,576 people would have come to know Jesus. That's one disciple making disciples, one disciple each year. I got that maths verified by someone who does maths and physics. Thank you very much, in-house mathematician. I was like, what? How do I do this maths? How incredible is that? An ordinary person taking the Great Commission seriously and saying, even if it's one, I'm going to bring you to know him. But imagine if we all walk in the way that we're called to live. Lord, we need you. I don't know about you, but something like that makes me wake up to what God has asked me, what God has put in me. Joseph the Levite was born again, and in his becoming, like Jesus, became a son of encouragement. What more can we learn from his life? I want to draw three points from the life of Barnabas. If you've got a Bible, why don't you turn with me quickly to Acts 11, and I'm going to be referencing from this text a few times, so it may help you to have it open. Acts 11, verses 19 through to 26. I'll come up on the screen as well. So reading from verse 19, it says this, Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw what the grace of God has done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. 
He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. The first thing that I want us to consider as we consider disciples making disciples from the life of Barnabas is that disciples speak the truth in love. Disciples speak the truth in love. Barnabas was named for and known by what he said to others. And a huge part of this clearly with his name being son of encouragement was that he was an encourager. His name was encourager. And as Pastor Martin has said, that means to give courage. To go, I'm going to give you words that are going to bring you courage to help you keep walking in the ways of God. We see that Barnabas, he's asked to go to the church at Antioch. And in verse 23, it says that he encouraged them. And the word in the Greek here is parakleo. And the same root word is used here for the Holy Spirit. When Jesus says, I'm going to send an advocate, one who's going to help you and teach you and remind you of all the things that I've said. And this is the same word used when Barnabas brings encouragement. I love this. It gives a beautiful picture of Barnabas drawing alongside and speaking good things over people. It gives a clear picture of being for them and bringing strength in the words that you say. We disciple others by speaking truth over them about who God says they are, about who God is, about what God has spoken over them and for them. We speak by being an encouraged and disciple, by being a prophetic community. That means we speak words that edify and strengthen and encourage and call out gifts. How many of you want to be a part of a community like that? Just four of us, no problem. <laughs> I want to be part of a community where the things of God are called out in me. And you know what's been beautiful since my time at CLM from the age of 12? It has been. People been call, have been calling out life in me, the gift of God in me, calling me to hire. Saying there's, there's something unique about you, Luke. There's something special, not just because of me as a person, because it's a promise of God. You don't have to have a prophetic word for someone to let them know they're loved by God. You don't have to feel like you've got a thus says the Lord to let them know that he's for them, not against them. We make disciples by speaking the truth in love. It says that Barnabas was a man full of the Spirit. He comes like the advocate, full of the advocate, full of the helper, full of the encourager to bring encouragement and life. People full of the Spirit speaking life over others. My question to you is, who are you drawing alongside? Who are you encouraging? Sometimes it can be so easy, right, to get caught up in our own lives that we forget to even see other people. Never mind give them encouragement. Who are we drawing alongside? Ephesians 4, 14 to 15 shows us the power of the truth in love. It says, then we will no longer be infants, 
tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. Here, Christian maturity is directly linked to speaking the truth in love, to speaking things that are true, to calling out falsehood, to correcting things where they're not quite right. Yes, truth in love is encouragement, but it's also correction. It's also accountability. It's also loving your brother and sister enough that you're willing to go through the awkwardness of saying, hey, that's not God's best for you. That means being a community and being a person that can take that. This is why a key ingredient to truth is that we speak it in love. Because it can be really difficult sometimes. We can be so prideful, right? Anyone else, just me, fine. We can be so prideful. And so anyone says anything that's a point of correction or says something maybe is a little bit off, then we're like, no, 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 no. That is not... What about the log in your own eye? Don't look at the speck in my eye. But actually a community where discipleship takes place is a community of humility. A community where we see God at work and we are not afraid to speak the truth in love. A principle for this that I love is that we privately correct and publicly we champion. We bring private correction. You love them enough to call them up after something and say, hey, how did that feel for you? What did that look like for you? But in public, we're their biggest fan. We're their number one fan. We champion people. We get alongside and we encourage. We speak good words. We honor. We don't gossip. That's where discipleship happens because it's so easy to speak pessimism. It's so easy to speak dishonoring words. It's so easy to speak falsehood or even flattery where we're trying to say something for the sake of getting something back. But the Bible says disciples, they speak the truth in love. There is such power in the words that we say and what we speak over people. I remember being eight years of age, and my family hadn't been in and around church for a long time. We were at a different church, and I went to someone's house, and I remember them saying so clearly to me that, did you know, Luke, just this little boy, they didn't really know, I was high energy, they said, did you know that the Bible calls us to be fishers of men, and we really believe that you're going to be a fisher of men. Eight-year-old Luke, that word was planted in his heart. What words are you planting in someone's heart? You might put a root down that can breed life or it can breed death. That's your choice. Because God has made you like him and your words have power. Power to create and bring life forth from what God has already said. Wow. To speak requires us to know what God says about himself, to know our word, to know our truth. It also means that we love to tell people about the love of Jesus, who is the way, who is the truth, who is the life. That in love, we point others to the truth of Jesus Christ. Disciples speak the truth in love. 
The second thing that I want us to understand is that disciples give generously. Disciples give generously. The first mention we have of Barnabas that I read from Acts 4 is that he sold some land and he gave money away. He saw a need. He saw that he had something that could meet the need. He sold his land and he gave the money to the disciples to meet need. No one fails to be encouraged by generosity or being blessed. Is that true? Who is blessed by being blessed? We know the feeling of what it is to be blessed and how it can warm our hearts. And the man who was discipled by this man, Barnabas, he got it. In Acts 20, 35, he says, In everything I did, I showed you by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. Remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. We all know what it is to receive a blessing, hopefully, and the joy of that. But the Bible helps us understand that it's actually more blessed even than to receive, to give. To give of ourselves, to give of our substance, just some of those things that we give of our resource, we give of our time and our energy, we give of our reputation, because to make disciples, that's the cost. Because a disciple is generous. The Lord Jesus himself said it is more blessed to give than to receive. We are never more like God than when we give. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Jesus says, come with all of your rubbish, with your heavy burdens, come with your yoke. And he says, I will give you rest. This is our God. But disciples, they're generous with what they have. It's going to take resource for someone to sit down in your home and be in the mix of your family and see what God has done in you and hear your stories and meet your family and get a sense of God, that means opening up your home. That means giving something, right? I want us to be reminded of the power of this. For me, some of the most impactful moments of my entire life have been in people's homes when they've opened their home to me, when I see something of godly family, when I see something of how they do life and what God has shaped with them, the, the, the dinners and the, the after talk and, and what God does in those spaces can be beautiful, but it requires a person to go, I'm going to open my home. I feel more than ever during COVID, our homes have become our kingdoms in some ways that mean it's totally a private space and not a shared space. But maybe the challenge for us afresh is to go, yes, this season of life might look different for me right now. Maybe you've got young children. Maybe it's a time where there's been a lot happening in your home, but for you to take stock and go, Lord, does my home need to be opened afresh? Incredible. When we take someone out for a coffee, that takes money. If you see someone and go, I want to pour into your life, I want to bless you, that takes money, right? I remember when I was heading out to Singapore, and incredible generosity of the people of God. Martin mentioned on a Sunday afternoon that I was going to have to fund some of the trip myself. So much of it was completely sponsored. 
And yet there was a cost that I would have to pay. I think it was around 300 pounds a month. And Martin, that was a throwaway line on the Sunday. By the Monday afternoon, from several different sources, people in this house, in this church, they had sponsored me the exact amount for every single month. I was blown away by the generosity of the people. And why did they give? Because they saw that God was wanting to do something in me. But that for disciples to be made, other disciples need to go, hey, I'm going to bless that. I'm going to be generous, and I am going to bless that. I'm sorry that your funds didn't pay off all of those people. Forgive me. (laughs) But how incredible, a 19-year-old, that they would say, yeah, we're going to pour into that. One of the Hebrew words for bless is barak. And this word gives a picture of God pouring, stooping down and pouring out of himself everything that he has that we don't have. And we as disciples and disciple makers are called to bless, to pour out of ourselves, to have an open hand. It takes time and energy It takes something of our reputation, and I'm going to just draw this from Acts 11 quickly to help us see these. Verse 24, after Barnabas arrives in Antioch, a great number of people were brought to the Lord and presumably joined the church there. So what this is saying is Barnabas goes to Antioch, the church starts blowing up. He's pastoring this amazing, vibrant congregation. But notice, what does Barnabas do? He doesn't make it about himself. He lays down his own reputation and opportunity, and he goes to get Paul. He goes to Tarsus. Now, this is a small line in the Bible, but this is a 150-mile journey. He goes on this journey. Why? Because he believed in Paul. Because the kingdom of God and making disciples, the health of the church and the community and his brothers and sisters, it was bigger than him. And so he goes on this journey to bring back Paul. He invested in Paul's life. He said, I'm not going to make this about me. I know there's someone who can do it better. And making disciples means going, I'm so for you. I'm going to sacrifice of my time and my energy. I'm going to give of my reputation for you to flourish. I want you to flourish in every area of your life. That's hard. And yet disciples are called to give generously, to go, you can go further than me. Everything I've got, you can have it. You can go further than me. Can I invite the band up as I draw to a close this morning? The final point that I want to make today is that disciples see differently. Can you turn to someone and say, disciples see differently? disciples see differently. Verse 23 of Acts 11 says of Barnabas that when he arrived, he saw what the grace of God had done. Before he encouraged and spoke truth, it says he saw, he observed what God was doing. And to make disciples, we have to see ourselves and our world through different lenses to observe what God has done, to see what he is doing, and to see what he might want to do. Disciples begin to see differently because Barnabas, he saw a young, zealous Paul, a man who, in the name of the Pharisees, he was a terrorist, and yet he sees a man that he can draw alongside who's given his life to Jesus, and he sees kingdom potential. 
Barnabas saw needs surrounding him. He saw his land and he saw an opportunity to give. Barnabas saw his life as an opportunity to bless and encourage others. Barnabas saw a savior who had come to seek and save the lost and he looked around him and he saw the lost and he says, my life's going to be sold out for this cause. Disciples are called to see with eyes of faith. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 7 says, For we live by faith, not by sight. We don't just see what it is now in the physical. We see what it can become. We look at a person and we go, There's so much in you that God wants to use. We look at community and a city and we say, God, I can see that you can do something in this space. We look at a family and we go, Jesus, would you come? To see through the lens of what God has spoken, to see through the lens of his heart. I believe Barnabas saw things differently because he had been caught by a vision of what it means to follow Jesus. Matthew 9, 36 to 38 says this of Jesus. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. What do we see here? We see a savior filled with compassion, on a world without a shepherd. On so many who are so far from him. In a state with no peace because they have no God in their lives. And he comes and he says, there's so many that could know me. The harvest is plentiful. And then the call to us is, would we go? Would we go and be generous in our worlds? Would we go and see things differently in the way that he asked? Would we go and speak the truth in love about our wonderful Savior into our everyday, into our Monday to Saturday, into our homes, into our workplaces? Would we go? I'm going to invite us to stand to our feet together as we draw to a close. In a moment, we're going to sing a song that's maybe new for us, but this is a song that's born out of the Great Commission. I just want to encourage you to make it your prayer today. I just want to finish with this. Last week, I pulled into church, and it was early on Sunday, serving on team, and someone excitedly ran out of their car. They'd been waiting, and they came with this Manchester United T-shirt. And basically, his son's boss had, was going into hospital that week, and he was an avid Manchester United fan. And through his connection, he'd managed to get this sign by Marcus Rashford. And he had the, the certificate there. And underneath Marcus Rashford's signature and number on the back of this United shirt was what he'd written, God loves you. Most of us might see an opportunity to just bless and, and bring this shirt. But this man of God, he says, it's not just enough that he would see Marcus Rashford's signature. I want him to look at that and every time he sees it to know that God loves him. This young man who doesn't know Jesus, this young man who's going to be scared and going into hospital, it's not just enough for him to get a United shirt, even though he'll love it. 
I want to bless him with that, but I want to bless him with a message that God loves him. That every day when he sees it, God loves you. And there's a world that needs to know God loves them. That God is for them. But he saw it differently. Because disciples see an ordinary moment and an ordinary opportunity to go, I'm going to make it extraordinary by sharing my God. Why don't we just close our eyes and I'm going to invite Holy Spirit to come. Lord, we welcome you afresh today. We thank you, Jesus, that you are the greatest, most beautiful example. We thank you, Lord, that you come and you give us strength. And I pray, Holy Spirit, even now as we sing, Lord, would you break our hearts afresh for yours? Would you help us see differently? Lord, would you help us see your heart for this nation, for our city, oh God, that we would have a heart afresh that beats after yours, Jesus, that we would come and say, Lord, we see the world around us. We see the sheep without a shepherd, and we know you are the good shepherd, oh God. So Holy Spirit, would you come even now? Pour forth your spirit. Pour forth your presence. We welcome you, Jesus.